Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Crystal Norton, here at the Law School Lounge. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Professor Daniel Medwed. He is a Carolina Academic Press co-author on our casebook, Criminal Law, Problems, Statutes, and Cases. But most recently, he's written a book titled Barred, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. We talked in depth about innocence-based advocacy and the innocence movement. And so before you dive into our wonderful discussion, let me tell you a little bit more about Dan. He is a leading authority on criminal law, and he has engaged in a lot of pro bono work in the name of the Innocence Movement. He's actually a founding member of the board of directors of the Innocence Network, which is a group of innocence projects throughout the world, and he was a former president on the board of directors for the Rocky Mountain Innocence Center. He also currently serves on the board of the New England Innocence Project. Prior to heading into academia, Dan worked in private practice, and he was an associate appellate counsel at the Legal Aid Society for the Criminal Appeals Bureau in New York City. He is currently at Northeastern University School of Law, but prior to that, he was a professor at the University of Utah, and he was also an instructor at Brooklyn Law School. Dan talks a lot about his time at Brooklyn Law School, where he helped oversee the school's Second Look program. Dan is not only a wonderful person, but an incredible professor. He has been given multiple awards in the area for his teaching, including the 2013 Robert D. Klein University Lectureship, and it's an award to a member of the faculty at Northeastern who has obtained some kind of distinction in their field of study. He also was a visiting professor at Harvard Law School during the 2019-2020 academic year where he received a teaching and advising award. As you will hear, Dan has so much to offer in this area as far as insights and personal experiences, whether you are just interested in this topic you're a new attorney who wants to engage in this type of practice, or you're a law student and you want to learn more about innocence-based advocacy. So let's get started. I have with me today, Professor Daniel Medwed, as I like to call him, Dan. (laughs) And we are here to talk about the innocence movement and innocence-based advocacy. He is also a co-author on a criminal law case book with Carolina Academic Press, which is how I have the pleasure of getting to know Dan and have him here with me. And so I'm really looking forward to picking your brain on the innocence movement and just hearing your stories about being an innocence-based advocate. And so the first thing I would love for you to tell us about is just kind of a brief history of the innocence movement. How did this get started? How did we end up where we are today? 
And first of all, I just want to thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of Carolina Academic Press. I, I commend you for doing this project. I think it's great. Um, I, I love the law school lounge, especially there aren't other law professors in the lounge right now, which means it's really pleasant. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but, but th thank you for having me. Um, so in terms of the history. Um, for many, many years, really centuries, people suspected that innocent people were wrongfully convicted, but it was very difficult to prove. Now, there were some outlying cases where you could actually prove it. For instance, there was a 19th century case from Vermont where two brothers were accused of killing their brother-in-law on a farm. There was sort of a, a real estate dispute and a family dispute. And the authorities found some bones on the property that they thought were the brother-in-law's bones. So these two guys, the Bourne brothers, were charged with murder and sentenced to death. Um, while they were on death row, Crystal, in Vermont, the brother-in-law comes back into town. He had just left. He hadn't died. And the bones happened to be bones of an animal. So that's one of the wow. sort of notorious wrongful convictions from the 19th century. But prior to the evolution of DNA testing in the 1980s, uh, innocence cases were sort of the topic of conjecture. Uh, Learned Hand, a, a famous judge with a great name, but his opinions aren't as great as his name, I think, uh, in 1923 said, you know, the American criminal justice system is haunted by the ghost of the innocent person convicted. It's an unreal dream. Now, a few years later in the 1930s, uh, a law scholar named uh, Borchard uh, published a book called Convicting the Innocent, where he documented about 60 plus cases that he believed were wrongful convictions. But a lot of it was based on circumstantial evidence, just uh, ah. the quantum of the evidence suggested that an innocent person was convicted. There were other studies over the years and a couple of isolated cases. But the real game changer that made the topic of innocence really a movement, and I'm so glad you're talking about movement, was the evolution of DNA testing in the 1980s. Because what DNA could do for the very first time is it could provide a scientific arrow to the scholar's bow. You know, the scholars taking all these shots and saying these are wrongful convictions, but then you had science to hit the target. So starting in 1989, there were two cases in 1989, one from Illinois, one from uh, Virginia, uh, starting with those cases, slowly but surely, a number of post-conviction cases were overturned on the grounds of DNA, typically single perpetrator rape and or murder cases, because mm. those are the types of cases that have biological evidence that could lead right. to DNA testing. And finally, um, people could hold up these individual cases and say, look, this guy was wrongfully convicted of a murder, wrongfully convicted of a rape. We know this because we did DNA testing on the crime scene evidence that belonged to the perpetrator, and it came back to exclude the person. And in some of right. these cases, that evidence even implicated or inculpated the true perpetrator. So a lot right. of us think of the innocence movement as really starting the, the modern innocence movement starting in 1989 with those cases, and then in 1992 when Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld founded The Innocence Project uh, mm. in New York City, which exclusively handles DNA cases. I mean, one, one quick point about this. The term Innocence Project is a little bit confusing. The Innocence Project in New York is called the Innocence Project. And there are lots of smaller Innocence Projects throughout the country, but they are not 
um, explicitly affiliated with the New York uh, project. They're right. sort of allies. We're all part of the same network. We, we actually founded a network in 2005, sort of a clearinghouse, a consortium of these projects. But there's a little bit of a terminology issue. The Innocence Project relates to the New York project. Other groups have different names, some of which, uh, some of them have Innocence Project in their titles. But that's <laughs> well, sort that's of like a brief overview. Yeah, no, I was just, yeah. sorry. I was just going to say, that's probably a testament to the fact that the Innocence Project, the Innocence Project, was such a starter in the movement that yes. everybody was kind of building off of that model. And now exactly. we've got this situation where, you know, it's kind of all sounding the same, but it's good to note the distinction because even that's something that I had to research myself uh, in anticipation of this episode. I'm like, I know there's the Innocence Project, yeah. but how do these all relate? And so that just really is direct evidence of how <laughs> everything has kind of exploded. And I think too, you know, you mentioned that prior to DNA, it was in the circumstantial realm when you had evidence. And now DNA really takes it into the objective scientific realm. And that's something that a lot of people can have strong feelings about, right? That they can really understand and get behind where circumstantial, they're like, oh, that's just what someone yeah. says. But DNA, it's kind of like, well, there's the science, right? Right. And that has good and bad implications, I would say. But for this purpose, for innocence movement, definitely is good implications. I think that's absolutely right, right, and that's a really good um, insight. It has good implications because you can prove innocence to a degree of scientific certainty you couldn't before. And the problem, there is a little bit of a downside, though, because most cases lack biological evidence suitable for mm -hmm. DNA testing. So some of us think DNA, as good as it is, has sort of raised the bar for proving innocence generally. So if you right. lack science prosecutors and judges and, and lay people will be like, well, the person's not innocent. Show me the DNA. Yeah, right? exactly. But for yeah. your, your average robbery, your average larceny, your average assault, there's no biological evidence from the perpetrator that's retained and that could be tested over time. And even in a lot of sexual assaults and murders, there might be evidence in theory, but perhaps the police don't accumulate it on the front end or it's not adequately preserved. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yes, on the whole, DNA has been great for drawing attention to this issue and for freeing, you know, at this point, more than 375 people since 1989. Wow. Um, but on the other hand, some of us think we're constantly arguing, hey, DNA is not the closed universe of these cases. It's just the right. tip of the iceberg. So let's learn, let's learn from these DNA cases so we can litigate the non-DNA ones. Right. And I, you know, some of later when we get into this, we'll talk about yeah. some cases where DNA is or is not available and kind of how that might have impacted or led to other issues related to the wrongful conviction because it led to being more of a circumstantial evidence based case, which then calls into question other issues that tend to come up in wrongful convictions, right? So things like false confessions or misidentifications, and we'll get into all of that. Yes, <laughs> all that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Back to the history. I think one thing I would ask you to maybe talk a little bit about, because it was very interesting when I read Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison, is really this idea of legal innocence versus yes. actual innocence and kind of how, I mean, DNA has played an effect 
in this differentiation or further that differentiation. But what does that look like and what does that mean? That's a great question. So technically, Crystal, legal innocence is a situation where the government can't or didn't prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's just say the government has to prove for a particular crime, murder is the crime, that you purposely killed another person. It was your conscious objective to kill another person. And you maybe killed the person accidentally. You, you didn't mm-hmm. think there were any bullets in the gun. Like you, you, were, you were playing a game, you were playing a joke, and you didn't think there were any bullets. You've maybe committed a crime Maybe it's manslaughter or criminally negligent homicide, but you haven't purposely killed someone. That wasn't your conscious objective. So technically, you're legally innocent of murder. As a Mm. matter of law, you're innocent of murder. And these are issues in so many cases because the prosecution bears the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they can't prove one of those elements, whatever the element might be, then you are legally innocent. And a lot of... Yes, please. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and this would be something like also where you have justifications, right? Exactly. So, exactly. Okay, so like intoxication, self-defense. Totally. All that kind of stuff. Okay. Exactly. Self-defense is a great example, right? Um, I'm actually looking into a case now where um, an accomplice went to trial first in Nebraska and was found guilty of um, aiding someone else and committing a homicide. The principal later went to trial and the principal was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Oh, so wow. we're, yeah, so we're looking at this case. <laughs> the, the accomplice got you know basically life in prison. We're looking at this case and we're like, this guy's legally innocent because the principal was deemed to be justified in his behavior. So how can you be an accomplice to a crime that effectively wasn't a crime? Ah, you, you, you know, so like, yeah, right, so you're, right. you're exactly right, right? That, 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 and that's legal innocence. And I think what's really interesting, Crystal, is the term legal innocence carries a lot of clout with lawyers, mm-hmm. and especially defense lawyers. Like, that's the name of a game as a defense lawyer. You want to create reasonable doubt. It's, right. not, a, it's okay. not necessarily proving that your person didn't do the crime. It's proving that the government or, or undermining the government's effort to prove that you did it beyond reasonable doubt. But what DNA did, and I'm so glad you asked this question, is that it allowed us to prove factual innocence, mm-hmm. which is like, hey, forget about the burden of proof. Forget about legalese. Forget about the elements of the crime. This is not the person who did this, either because there was no crime at all. It wasn't, it wasn't a crime. Or someone else did it. Uh-huh. And, and that, I think, resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of like, the, if, if you know nothing or you've never been able to participate in a criminal trial as yeah. a juror in any other way, that's kind of the monster in the closet, right? Yes. This idea that you are told you've done something when you were in another state, you had nothing yeah. to do with it, you have no idea. That's, that's like a big sort of fear or situation that any person is like, oh my goodness, if that happened to me or somebody I knew... That would be so scary. That's so exactly. awful, right? It's, and that's something people can understand. They can understand. And I think it's very relatable because on a mm. much less severe level, I think all of us have had that situation, right? Like you're mm. a kid and your sibling took the cookies from the cookie <laughs> jar, right? And your parents are like, Daniel, you took the cookies from the cookie <laughs> jar. 
And I'm like, no, my brother did, but I don't, but I don't want to rat out my brother necessarily, but I'm being sure. accused of something. And, and once you're accused, we can all relate to that. It's, it's really hard to prove a negative. You're like, mm-hmm. once there's been an assumption that you did something for you to sort of protest, you feel very defensive and people don't believe you. And yeah, so I think it's relatable. Now, of course, what's really important to underscore about these cases, Crystal, is there are lots of factors that correlate with wrongful convictions, including race and class. So it is a fear that many people have, but it's a much more realistic fear if you come from a vulnerable, marginalized population, right? Definitely. No, and you actually have a great quote in your book in relation to these types of components that come into play when you're dealing with vulnerable populations or people of different classes. And I, I want to say it here because it really was something that resonated with me. And it says, it's about power and control. It's about the ways in which those at the top keep those at the bottom from moving up ways that are all dressed up in legalese. And I think that's 100% accurate in so many different ways. What made you, or like, how would you describe that? I know obviously those yeah. are your words, but yeah. but is that kind of what you're trying to convey right now as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what sort of, there were a lot of things that, motivated me to write this book. A lot of them related to my experiences as an appellate and post-conviction lawyer, especially mm-hmm. running an innocence project for four years. But, but at bottom, I think a lot of people think of procedure as this really well-thought-out, mm-hmm. coherent legal system that a lot of wise people have decided upon. And the truth of the matter is, upon reflection and taking a deep dive into all of them, a lot of it is just a function of history. And mm-hmm. as sort of perpetuating these historical norms. And if you look back to history, one of the, the, the undercurring uh, reasons, sort of the undercurrents behind these procedures was suppression, right? Mm-hmm. To, to keep criminal defendants from having too many bites at the apple from ensuring that cases were final, that prosecutors and judges and crime victims could move on with their lives. And so, you know, that's part of what was animating this book and certainly animating those those sentences, which is we have the procedures and we should respect the procedures and we should deconstruct the procedures, but we should also be mindful of what legal realists would call, you know, the truth beneath the surface, which is there is an element of hierarchy and element of power um, uh, embedded in these these procedures. Right. Well, I think there's a common, well, I guess it's not as common as it it probably should be, (laughs) but this idea that the procedures are there, that they're in place and that they work and that they will take care of whatever kind of issues arise, right? That's exactly the sole purpose for those procedures that allows people who find themselves in the position that they're being wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted, that they have these options. But the reality is that whether the options work effectively and efficiently is a different question than whether or not they exist, right? And and that's something you talk a lot about in your book as well, which I really appreciated. And another great quote from you. you were oh my gosh, thank you. Book. It says, <laughs> the fact that they receive freedom in the end does not mean the process works. It's often said that justice delayed is justice denied. By that measure, all of them were denied justice. And I think that puts it very poignantly, this fact that, sure, someone got out of prison, but it was after 20 years and they've lost 20 years of their life. And that delay is just as unjust as anything else that happened along the process. And the procedures weren't effective in that way just because someone was released. Exactly. 
I think, and I'm I'm really glad glad you brought that up. It, it, you know, because a lot of people, uh, especially sort of more conservative viewers of the criminal justice system, will look at these exonerations and say, "Hey, the system works. The, these innocent people were ultimately freed." I mean, it's too bad it took a while, but but we have a really careful procedure, and we want to make sure that it's accurate. And and the fact that people were freed instead of pointing to the flaws in the system uh, suggests that the system is working. I do not buy that argument in the slightest. Again going back to this idea, not just that justice delayed is justice denied, but the idea that documented exonerations are, as I've said before, the tip of the iceberg. There is an unknowable mass of wrongful convictions beneath the surface that we just can't identify, either because there's not the evidence or we don't have the resources to do it, or these procedures mask these cases from coming uh, uh, to the to the fore. Okay. And where is the innocence movement today? What kind of position are innocence-based advocates in today as far as yeah. after all this history? This is sort of a good news, bad news situation. The, the, the good news, I think, is that um, there's been so much attention given to innocence in the last 30, 35 years at this point that there are more resources being given to these organizations and there are more um, organizations that are being formed than in years past. Um, at this point, that Innocence Network that I mentioned before, uh, a crystal, which we founded in 2005, is just bigger and bigger, right? Every year it sort of grows. And there, there's now an international component where there are innocence projects across the world. And uh, donors and funding organizations, individual donors and, and funding organizations, are, and even some states are, are giving more money to these organizations than in the past. So that's sort of the good news. Is, right? There's a lot of attention paid to these cases. There are a lot of lawyers. A lot of law students have expressed interest in this work. A lot of non-lawyers have expressed interest in the work. Mm. Podcasts, TV shows, movies, oh, lots yeah, of we'll attention. Of <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> the, the bad news, and this is what I've been kind of crying about uh, for a couple of years now, is we seem to be sort of at the end of the DNA era. And here's what I mean by that. So if DNA evolved as a technology in the 1980s, and it would be used to look back at old cases where someone's in prison and the biological evidence from the crime scene hasn't been tested, then you know eventually, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of those cases to go through. But what happened starting in the late 80s and really in the 90s is now police and prosecutors, if they're doing their job, or defense lawyers, are testing the crime scene evidence at the front end for DNA. So we're going to see inevitably, just statistically, fewer and fewer DNA exonerations because the only cases where there hasn't been testing are really, really old cases where it might I be see. hard to find the evidence. Because the more recent cases, and there are lots of mistakes in recent cases, some of the, some, sometimes there's not DNA testing, sometimes the evidence in law is lost, DNA testing improves and is refined over time. So there still will be cases, but there's reason to think that at least the slice of, hey, innocent person wrongfully convicted, DNA evidence has proven the person's wrongfully convicted, and this other guy did it, there's reason to think, and we're seeing some evidence of it, that that number is going to dwindle. So the downside with that, and the reason I think it's kind of bad news, is that we, those of us within the innocence movement, could do a better job, and I try to do this, a lot of people do it, of sort of articulating that point that DNA exonerations, again, are just this thin slice of the overall pie 
of potential wrongful convictions. And just because of this historical anomaly of time that the number might dwindle of DNA exonerations doesn't mean problem solved. It just means that we have to focus more on non-DNA cases and other types of cases. So good news, lots of attention. Bad news is for the people who aren't sort of in the weeds of this, there's a risk that as we see fewer DNA exonerations, uh, some people might think problem solved. And the problem has not been solved. Yes. Yes. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. Because I was going to say too that, you know, the upside to DNA testing at that point yeah. is hopefully that there are just less exactly. convictions, period, right? Because people yes. are able to exclude people who would otherwise have been wrongfully convicted at the outset. But I see exactly what you mean where people are like, oh, look, all of the wrongfully convicted folks have been you know, exonerated when necessary and we're all done. Yeah. Our job is all done. But, uh, and as our cases but, we're going to talk about, we'll discuss, <laughs> that is far from true. And so I think yeah. what you have is a very fair point. But I'm glad you mentioned that, and I, I should underscore that, because that, that's really the big takeaway, which is people are being weeded out at the front end if DNA is doing its job at the front end. And so we don't even see these cases because people are being screened out, mm-hmm. right? There's a suspect, and they do the testing before someone's even charged or go to trial. So that is an unmitigated good. I agree with you. Like, that's a huge advantage of DNA testing. But one thing I should mention, and I put this in the book to kind of put a number on this, estimates suggest that only about 10 to 20% of cases have any biological evidence from the perpetrator at all. Um, Again, usually sexual assault and and murder or hand-to-hand combat situations. But even if it could be there, Originally, that doesn't mean crime scene investigators will find it. It doesn't mean the police and prosecutors will adequately preserve it over time, mm-hmm. right? So the vast majority of criminal cases don't involve biological evidence at all. Right, right. No, yeah. and I think that's a really, I don't know, it's a very honest picture of the situation, yes. right? But I, I think especially with things like TV and yes. movies, right? It's the CSI effect to, to yes. a degree that there's this idea that all of the cases have DNA or they should. And exactly. They don't, it, the problem too is if, it, if it, they don't have DNA, they look at it more as the fault of the defendant instead of the fault of the people who would have handed the evidence. They're like, oh, they must have just used gloves or whatever the case may be, instead of saying, well, the evidence could have been out there and it just was never collected or so on, or not disclosed, which could be another issue entirely. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought up CSI because this has been sort of, you know, something that's bothered me for years. There's something known as the CSI effect, Mm -hmm. this sort of factor in these cases. And it's really complicated because on the post-conviction side, a lot of us hate the CSI effect, this idea that judges in the post-conviction arena would also expect scientific evidence of innocence, and and we might not have it. But it's funny, not funny, haha, but sort of funny, strange prosecutors are the ones who really hate the CSI effect at trial Mm. because if they don't have scientific evidence of guilt and jurors expect it, Right. They fear they fear that they're being punished. So it's it's this really interesting and complicated phenomenon. Yeah. But I think CSI is no longer on TV. Is this true? I must be dating myself. Oh, I don't know. I, you know Nick at night, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Nick at night. Oh my gosh, that brings me back. <laughs> well, that actually leads nicely into my next question because you mentioned post-conviction relief. And I think yeah. uh, there is 
sort of, we talked about procedure and how everyone knows, okay, there are procedures in place. What is, what, you know, people should use them. Right. But what exactly are the procedures? Like what, you know, you have direct appeal post-conviction. You also have the ability to ask for a pardon, but what does that look like or how are they related to one another? Great. Uh, yeah, I'll break it down into those those three categories you just outlined, Crystal. Uh, first, the direct appeal. Second, post-conviction remedies. And third, sort of executive branch remedies mm-hmm. like clemency. So I think a lot of people have heard this trope that there are countless appeals. And the term appeal is sort of thrown out there as a catch-all phrase for every type of post-trial remedy. But it's actually much more complicated and stringent than that. And, and here's how it works. As a matter of statute, statute in every state and in our federal system, not the Constitution, interestingly, you have a right to a direct appeal. There's nothing in the Constitution about appealing your case. And a direct appeal, I like to call it a vertical remedy. It's like you take an empty cup and you put it over the trial or you put it over the plea. You can only challenge to a higher appellate court the issues that were raised in the lower court issues that came up at trial. That means no new evidence. You can't introduce new evidence on the direct appeal, which means that it's basically a poor vehicle for proving innocence because you can't bring up any new evidence of innocence, like a new witness or anything like that in the direct appeal. They would be reserved for like legal innocence more so. Exactly. So like they wrongly found I didn't use self-defense or whatever. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The direct appeal is better for, and I'm glad you brought that up again, Direct appeal is better for a legal innocence claim. We will just say government didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I had the mental state of purpose or, you know, the the jury um, made an error about justification or the judge should have charged self-defense to the jury and didn't. Those are the types of issues. But it's really difficult. You can prove legal innocence, you can prove lots of errors, but it's really difficult for a factually innocent person to necessarily get success on the direct appeal. You can sometimes claim that the evidence was legally insufficient or that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence, but without bringing in anything new, it can be a real uh, a challenge. Okay. There are also are these procedural norms and doctrines that make it even harder. Usually you can only raise issues that are called preserved for review where there was an objection at trial. There are some exceptions, but generally that's the case. And even then, if you could prove that there was an error at trial, you often lose on appeal because the court will say that the error was um, um, harmless that the error was harmless in light of the rest of the evidence in the case. So as I talk about in the book for several chapters, the direct appeal just is not a great vehicle to drive a factual innocence case to the finish line. That leaves the second category uh, that you alluded to, collateral or post-conviction remedies. So while the direct appeal, as I said, is a vertical remedy where you're basically just looking exactly down below at trial or the plea and and trying to figure out what went wrong, collateral remedies are uh, horizontal. You're attacking it from the side. And there are two major collateral remedies in the U.S. The first is the, the famous writ of habeas corpus. Um, Habeas corpus is Latin for, you know, you have the body. And it's a way for a prisoner, you have to be in custody to do this. It's a way for a prisoner to challenge the legality of why the government has you in detention. 
You could do it pre-trial, you could do it after trial, but it's a way originally in the old England to force the government to justify why someone's behind bars. We have it here in the US. It is in the constitution kind of indirectly through something called the suspension clause, which says that, that habeas corpus may not be suspended except in times of rebellion, of war, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, So we have habeas corpus, and we also have it at the federal level, where federal judges can look even at state convictions to make sure that the state convictions are kosher. So habeas looks great in theory because it's this chance to get another look at a case. And even with federal habeas corpus, it's a chance for a federal judge to look at a state court conviction even after the case has gone through the state court appellate process. But here's the rub. Here's the real problem, Crystal. Historically, habeas corpus was about constitutional and jurisdictional errors. Judges would have to find that the prisoner was deprived of her constitutional rights or was charged in the wrong court, something like Mm. that. A claim of factual innocence by itself is not what's called cognizable in a federal habeas corpus action. That principle comes from a case called Herrera versus Collins. And then even just last week in a case from the Supreme Court called Jones versus Hendricks, the Supreme Court made it much harder for claims of legal innocence to be presented um, through a second or successive habeas petition years down the road. So basically, a combination of Congress passing very strict habeas procedures and the Supreme Court being really stingy in its vision of how habeas could be used means that habeas doesn't work. Okay. So the second collateral remedy, and please, Crystal, feel free to, to intervene no, here if, if I'm I, rambling I too much. A master class. This is wonderful. I don't know if it's a master class. <laughs> You're getting something. You're getting a medwed ramble. Um, the, the second main uh, collateral remedy, which I love to talk to my students about um, and just people about generally, because I didn't even know what this was until I was, you know, like five years into my practice of law. Yeah, I had never heard of it. I worked in federal immigration, and, and so we saw habeas quite frequently, right? All the time. But I had never really heard much about the second one you're going yeah, to Yeah, the about. second so one. I'm glad that you're going to talk about it, yeah. Uh, sure. So it's called the writ of error quorum nobis. And um, quorum nobis means before us. It's Latin for before us. And it's an ancient British procedure that we inherited and was acknowledged, I think, in 1810 by the Supreme Court, something like that. It's an ancient procedure that allows you to go back to the original trial judge, the same trial judge, and try to introduce newly discovered evidence that suggests that there was a miscarriage of justice, that suggests that there might have been a mistake. So quorum nobis, in theory, is the mechanism, right? It is the way to prove your innocence in court. You find newly discovered evidence. Maybe a witness has recanted. Maybe you found some new physical evidence. Maybe there have been some scientific developments in your case. Maybe you learn about, you know, juror bias or impropriety or a conflict of interest with the prosecutor or the judge. Whatever it is, it's a way for you to present it in court. And so quorum nobis, that's the way that a lot of us would litigate these cases. And there's a DNA testing statute that's sort of a a separate animal that's a little bit like quorum nobis. But here's the problem with quorum nobis. You're going back to that original trial judge Mm. who was involved in the original 
miscarriage of justice. And that judge has a lot of discretion in terms of even giving you an evidentiary hearing on your new evidence. And, you know, there's a lot of cognitive psychology at play here. There's something known as the status quo bias. You know, you once you make a decision, you dig in your feed and you, you stick to it. Um, we all know this from our lives, right? Yeah, nobody likes being told they're wrong. And I no think judges are particularly <laughs> unfond of yeah, being told they're Exactly. They don't want to admit they've made a mistake. I, I saw some story. My, my wife doesn't like this story, but I saw some data talking about how people stay in relationships something like eight years longer than they should because they're... they're <laughs> yeah, so now I see why your wife doesn't like it. Yeah, she yeah. doesn't like it. But I'm like, honey, we've been married almost 25 years. It's okay. It's okay. We're fine. But, but this idea, right? Like once you commit to a relationship, once you commit to a job, once you commit to um, a political party, once you commit to a particular viewpoint, you know, we don't like to admit we're wrong. And part of it is because we conceive of the evidence out there in the world in a way that kind of enforces our original decision. Uh, and we mm-hmm. discount evidence that undermines our decision. And right. part of that is we want to preserve a sense of dignity and a sense that we were, were good people and we made good decisions. We can talk about more of that later. But for, <laughs> for quorum nobis, it, it just means that you're going back to the original judge, and that's mm-hmm. not always an advantage. The theory behind it is the original judge would remember the case and right. maybe be in the best position to evaluate whether the new evidence would make a difference. Sure. Like an efficiency argument, right? They efficiency don't to, argument, yeah. mm-hmm. right? The downside is they might be familiar with it, but they might be vested in the outcome. The other problem is that appellate courts and other courts have created a really high bar for what it means to have newly discovered evidence. It doesn't mean newly available evidence, evidence that you've just found. It has to be evidence that could not have been discovered through due diligence at the time of trial. So sometimes you're in this weird place where you can't prove it's newly discovered evidence because the evidence could have been discovered at trial. But maybe you can't show that your the trial lawyer was ineffective for not finding mm-hmm. it for a variety sure. of reasons. So that's quorum nobis. And then finally, uh, there are these executive branch remedies. And the idea is, okay, maybe you, you can't get recourse through direct appeal. Maybe you can't get recourse through a collateral remedy like habeas or quorum nobis. But what about going to a different branch of government, a, a branch that might not be vested in the case, and have them look at it a little more holistically? So that's where clemency comes in and also parole. So clemency is the power of the government to basically pardon someone or to commute their sentence. It's grounded in the idea of forgiveness. And in fact, the term clemency comes from the goddess Clementia, who was this like Roman goddess that Julius mm-hmm. Caesar would cite to spare the lives of opponents on the battlefield and save yeah. their lives. Yeah. And actually, my second daughter is named Clementine. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. you know, my yeah. almost named me that. My grandfather. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> yet, yet another reason why I think you're fantastic. <laughs> we make a great team. We are. <laughs> big team, right? You have the crystal ball, though. You, right now, you can see the truth through your crystal there ball, we go. right? I like. I still have to tell my yeah. mom that. Yeah. <laughs> she had. Better. She had the crystal ball. I yeah. Guess. Well, she yeah. got all of the slack from my grandfather. Clementine is a great name. My my mom was like, no, crystal it is. So she'll like that justification. I'll I, I think I, I like crystal. You're sparkling and you have a clarity, oh, right? You're so cool. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but so, but the problem with clemency crystal slash clementine, uh, <laughs> the, the problem with, with clemency is, as I said, it's all about forgiveness. It's all about redemption. Same thing with parole. And what that means is it's usually reserved for people who committed the crime mm-hmm. and then have expressed uh, regret. They've res- expressed remorse. And the government is being magnanimous and charitable and exercising mercy. Right. So ironically, you have a better chance of getting clemency if you did something like you killed somebody but you've done well in prison to improve yourself and you apologize for what you've done and you convince the board that you're unlikely to be a recidivist. And I guess that, if, kind of, yeah. sorry, I guess yeah, that kind of stems from the push towards rehabilitation, right? Yes. The sort of push towards the rehabilitation movement and, you know, showing that you've been able to be rehabilitated and exactly. that you are now able to, you know, contribute quote, not that you were before, but that's the thought, yeah. contribute to society again. Exactly. It's grounded in all these really interesting ideas. Many of them are 19th century ideas. Um, Freudian psychology, mm-hmm. that if you're in denial, if you don't admit something that's bad for your psychological health, and if you admit to your sins or you admit to your mistakes, like that's an important step on the path to self-improvement. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the ideology of clemency and parole that you've got to admit and accept responsibility. So there's a psychological piece of it. There's also a really strong religious piece to yeah. it. It, it was sin, in the, I was like, yes, that's, yeah, I that yeah, exactly. I mean, the 19th century is when prisons started to be called penitentiaries, to be a penitent, to repent, to show penance for your sins, right? And and so this idea that you have to be repentant in order to deserve this act of grace from the government um, is embedded in the process. Long story short, people who are actually innocent of the crimes are not always repentant, right? Because they haven't done anything (laughs) wrong Mm -hmm. and they might not accept responsibility for something they didn't do. So these aren't really great vehicles for freeing the innocent either. So contrary to popular opinion, again, I went into a deep dive into all this, but contrary to popular opinion, there aren't all of these escape hatches from the prison cell endless appeals and endless opportunities. There are several different opportunities, but none of them are ideal for innocence claims. Even quorum nobis, which could be pretty darn good in theory, isn't that great in practice. And, you know, just from my viewing of news and such, it does seem as if, particularly among governors, that pardons are becoming more common than at least they seem to be. I don't know if they were always more common and maybe they just weren't reported as often because the innocence movement wasn't as prominent, but it does seem like governors are a little more open to pardons than they may have been in the past. Is that an accurate sort of assessment or is that not true? You you know, that's so interesting, Crystal. I think that's a really good observation. And I think the data um, is a little complicated on that. I think you're right. (laughs) Of course it is. Like, so my impression is like in a lot of States, um, there are more pardons, especially for things like low-level drug crimes, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so now, now we have legalization of marijuana in a number of states. And so you have governors that are maybe, you know, pardoning people for marijuana offenses or other sort of drug-related offenses, because there's a growing awareness, especially in blue states or purple states, um, that people shouldn't necessarily have spent 
10 years in prison, 20 years in prison uh, for a drug offense that, that didn't have any uh, you know, violent aspect to it, right? Yeah. Um, also, there's more of an awareness of things like um, intimate partner uh, of violence, right. um, or sometimes called, you know, um, um, you know, sort of these, these the, the, um, I don't like the term battered women syndrome, but, but mm-hmm. cases that involve spousal or intimate partner violence, where maybe people who were defending themselves, but didn't have a successful self-defense claim, because oftentimes what happens in these domestic violence situations is, is the victim or the survivor will lash out at the abuser during an interlude in the pattern of violence, because that's when it's safe to defend yourself. But because of the rules of self-defense that say that you have to act in, um, in, in facing an imminent threat, the threat right. has to be imminent, sometimes people, often women, not always, will lose on self-defense grounds in these cases. But so people will get pardoned on those cases or be given some benefit famous case from Tennessee, Centoya Brown, yeah. um, you know, is a case, that, an example of that. So I think there are movements and cases that, that suggest that pardon power is being used more often. In other states, especially states where, um, redder states, I think where, you know, there's a, a sense, whether this is true or not, that crime is on the rise. Um, some governors are maybe being a little bit more skeptical of using pardon powers, you know, for fear that someone will get out and and and, and commit another offense. But but I think you're right. I think the perception is that more of these cases, more pardon cases are happening. Interesting. Okay. No, thank you for answering that because that was something yeah. just personally that I was wondering. As yeah, I no, you're reading about it. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So now let's talk about you know, kind of the meat or the heart of the matter here. Yeah. Like, why do wrongful convictions happen, right? We've talked about the yes. history of the movement, talked about how to handle them. But, you know, I guess I see quite a few issues or quite a few reasons. And I think a yeah. lot of these have gotten much more attention overall than they ever used to. And I think that's obviously for a lot of different reasons. One, I really believe is just how trials have become televised in a lot of main cases. I think that's played a big role. But we have things like eyewitness testimony on reliability or misidentification. We have incarcerated informants. So kind of why are people testifying? We have false confessions, prosecutorial misconduct, law enforcement misconduct, ineffective assistance, which I know you've mentioned. And then I'll say, you know, the last two, which <laughs> are the biggest, but plea bargaining and yes. the destruction or access to biological evidence, which I know you talk about at great length in, in BARD. Um, but yes. if we could just kind of talk a little bit about each of these. Uh, sure. So for misidentification, why exactly is that something that happens or like how has that really come to the forefront? That's a great question. So one huge benefit of DNA, and, and I should have mentioned this before, it, 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 and it relates to your question, Crystal, is that it's given us a data set of cases to study to try to try to basically um, reverse engineer to figure out what went wrong at the beginning. Because mm. once somebody has been proven innocent through DNA, we now know, hey, the person was innocent. Let's go back to the beginning and try to figure out what went wrong. Mm. And so a lot mm. of the factors that you just mentioned sort of come from statistical and qualitative analyses of 
documented DNA exonerations. So eyewitness mis-ID, I'm glad you're leading with that, is perhaps the most prominent factor in a wrongful conviction. It appears in something like 70% of these cases. And the idea is this. It's not that, say, a crime victim or an eyewitness is purposely trying to pin a crime on an innocent person. It's just because of the phenomenon, the psychology of eyewitness uh, behavior can lend itself to making mistakes. And sort of here's, here's how it works. There are both what are called estimator variables and system variables. Mm. Estimator variables are often things like beyond your control. Crimes typically happen at night, they happen quickly. They happen with usually without advance warning. And so you're not really in the best visual position to identify someone. If okay. you're a crime victim and someone snatches your, your purse or your wallet, it happens quickly. You might be in a state of shock. You just might not be in the best position. So you might just make a mistake. That's the first thing. The other thing about it, there are, in violent crimes in particular, there's a lot of data talking about something known as weapon focus, where if someone puts a gun in, in to your head or a knife to your throat, you're not necessarily looking at them, looking into their eyes to try to memorize what they look like. Right. Because you're looking at the weapon sure. for obvious reasons. Right. Yeah. right. So, you know, there are just a lot of sort of psychological phenomenon about estimator variables that make it hard to get it get it right. One of the most important ones that I want to emphasize is something um, known as cross-racial misidentifications. Even if there are problems, as there always are with these estimator variables, people from different races are often not very good at identifying each other. Part of it is bias in some cases, but a lot of it simply relates to what, what scholars have called ethnocentric homogeneity, a really fast, you know, sort of fascinating term. But we still live in a pretty segregated society. Mm. We are not as diverse, as integrated as many of us would like. And what that means is we're more accustomed to seeing people who look like us than seeing people who look different from us. And so we're just not as well versed in identifying people from different races as we are in terms of intra-racial identification. Also, different racial groups tend to look at different characteristics in differentiating within the group. And some of those characteristics aren't as easily transferable to different, different groups, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So maybe white folks will focus on um, eye color as a key factor or hair color. That those differentiating characteristics might not be as well suited to identifying someone who is Asian, right? Or, or where, where hair color might be more uniform than it is in the Caucasian population, for instance. But there are many other distinguishing characteristics within that community that people use to distinguish people, but they might not be the same characteristics that Caucasians use, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there are lots of reasons, but, but a lot of these wrongful convictions involve cross-racial misidentification. Again, it's not bad faith. It's just to a large extent, problems with estimation that are beyond the individual's control. The second group, systemic factors. Okay, once a crime has occurred and there's an eyewitness, how does the system handle it? You know, like what are the procedures that we use to handle it? And the typical procedure is either a photo lineup or a physical lineup. Um, these are called six packs, six photos typically and the idea is that you should find six people who resemble the description of the perpetrator and then show them as a group 
to the eyewitness. And the idea is if, let's say the eyewitness identifies the perpetrator as a six foot a six foot two a white man, mid thirties, um, heavy, uh, you know, two hundred fifty pounds or something like that. The police then find six photographs of white men who fit that description. And the idea is, if you're given these options, you know, and they there's not one picture that sticks out that's suggestive, then maybe you'll make the right choice. Mm-hmm. The problem, and some psychologists have talked about this, is in the way that we do these procedures. If you're given six options all at once, are you making an absolute judgment about whether one of them did the crime or are you just picking the person who most closely resembles your memory? Right. Like, yeah, let's say like you go into an ice cream shop with your friends. This happens to me a lot. Like, and I don't really want ice cream. I don't, I don't, or I don't feel like I should have my fourth ice cream of the day or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, I go in and then I see all these options and then I end up like picking the one that seems like the best for me, but I don't even really want ice cream at all, but I'm just given this, you know, comparison shopping billboard of ice cream flavors. And so what some scholars suggest is instead of giving a composite to make so, so that people will choose, make a comparative judgment and pick somebody who looks like the person, is you give one photo at a time or you have one person at a time. Oh. So you, you do an absolute judgment about whether that person is the one. In other words, you're not comparing them to each other explicitly. You're making an absolute judgment with each one. And again, each of them should fit that general description. Right. Now, the counter argument to this, it's called a sequential lineup. The other one is called a simultaneous lineup. The downside that some people have identified is that you might keep looking for a better option. Like you might pass over the true perpetrator because you think there's going to be someone else coming down who is even more like the true perpetrator than the one you think was the true perpetrator. Interesting. But so the, yeah, there well, are lots of issues. I think it's interesting too because yeah. personally, yeah. I was thinking that that was actually a pro that like, yeah, I think if, so too. <laughs> right. So, cause I mean, well, I mean like if I'm sitting there and I, I don't know how many pictures they're going to show me necessarily, yeah. like, you know, just if I'm removing myself from this scenario in general, and I'm imagining that I'm a victim or an eyewitness and you're showing me pictures and I'm like, well, no, that's not them. They must be coming. Right. Then I'll wait. And then if I just don't see them, I don't see them because I think there's part of the assumption when you have a group of six people that law enforcement did their job and the six, the person is in there. Like they don't understand or recognize that there's this option that the person's not there at all. Right. I think they go in with this unconscious assumption that, you know, they did their investigation. There are six people here. Five of these people are not the person and one person is. So I have to pick someone. I think there's sort of this inherent pressure to pick. And I kind of feel that the sequential concept would alleviate that, but I could be wrong. I mean, that's just- No, I think you're right. I think you're totally right. And I like the way you identified that, Crystal. That's exactly the argument in favor of sequential, mm-hmm. which is, hey, you're going to, you make this absolute judgment and you're just not going to identify someone if the person's not there. Because mm-hmm. you, and, and if you don't know how many pictures they're going to show you, if it ends up the person's not one of them, 
that's okay. Like you haven't misidentified someone. Right. Whereas if you have six composite like that, just like six ice cream flavors, you're going to feel like you have to pick one. Right. And I mean, the ice cream analogy is imperfect, I realize, but but I think you're you're right. If if you are summoned to the police station to see a six pack of six photos of people who match the description, you're going to think the police have done their homework. They're not going to waste my time or their time. It's got to be one of the six. Right. And so another part of the reforms that people have talked about is that simple instructions, it's called a, a having a double-blind lineup procedure where the administrator doesn't know who the suspect is. Ah. The person who's the police officer who's administering it doesn't know who the principal suspect is and tells the the um, uh, viewer, the eyewitness, that they don't know who the suspect is. And then they even say something like, the, the true person may or may not be in here. They explicitly point to your concern. And then at the end of the identification, let's say that the eyewitness picks out someone, you ask for a confidence statement. You know, how confident are you that you got it right? I so if see. they say they're 70% confident, that's more telling than if they say I'm 100% confident. Okay. So there are lots of procedures in there. But, but when it comes down to it, I think a lot of us believe eyewitness mis-ID is a huge problem. Some of the problems are incurable. They're just, they're just estimator problems of crimes happening at night and the fact that we live in a segregated society and all of these different things. But if we could improve the system variables and that maybe we could give jury instructions about some of these phenomenon and maybe we could allow expert witnesses about some of these phenomenon, then maybe it would help juries to understand that mistakes are made. Because I think a lot of people think, wow, I would get it right. If someone snatched my wallet and I got to look at the guy, I would get it right. Like there's sure. a mismatch where people think that eyewitness ID is more accurate than it really is. Definitely. Well, and I think that's a default of the system, right? Because yes. before you had DNA and other sorts of scientific types of evidence, you really wholly had to rely on eyewitness testimony. Yes, right. right. There was a part in time or a point in time when eyewitness testimony was the evidence for you know exactly. And so, if you couldn't believe that and you couldn't reach a conclusion based on their testimony, then was and you know you get into that sort of existential thought of like, well, if I can't trust them, what can I trust? And how could we exactly ever, right? kind of raises all of these other concerns and inherent problems more with the system than with anything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So I guess the next thing we could talk about, if you're done, are you good talking yeah. about? Oh, I'm never done, Crystal. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, please. You're, you're doing a good good job of keeping me on track, oh, which is not you. always easy. So thank you. No, I, so the next one is a little bit difficult to talk about, but I think it's, it's much easier for people to understand. I think you know, but incarcerated or otherwise informants yeah. who benefit from something in anticipation of their testimony. So I feel like that comes in, you know, a couple of shades, right? You have incarcerated individuals or what yeah. you might call snitches who are on the inside and maybe they're a roommate. And so they testify in exchange for perks or maybe a lesser sentence or whatever the case may be. So then you also have people who are 
somehow implicated or connected to the crime and they agree to testify in order for a lesser charge or a lesser sentence, right? And so what, obviously there's some bias here and there's some vested interest in a particular outcome, but what else? is kind of the issue here. Like, what are the I love that you're talking about there? this, and, and this is really important. So I think, and I like how you drew a line between these two categories. You have an informant, they're sometimes called jailhouse informants or snitches, as you say, who will come forward and basically say something like, my cellmate confessed to the crime. I will testify against my mm-hmm. cellmate if you give me leniency or something like that. And those that category is different from a category of people that are known as cooperating witnesses. Somebody who is involved Mm -hmm. in the criminal enterprise, maybe they're an accomplice or or somehow involved, they're explicitly offered leniency, maybe immunity, in exchange for testifying against someone, right? This often might happen in like some type of criminal enterprise. Maybe someone who's lower on the totem pole will be given leniency in terms of testifying against someone higher up in, uh, you know on the, on the in the food chain and right. mixing my metaphors so the problem of course is is if you're being um, promised something in exchange for saying something it means it's inherently incentivized and compromised testimony but the way we deal with it in the courtroom crystal is just that you're allowed to be uh, cross-examined about that arrangement it, it goes to your credibility as a witness and the jur- it doesn't mean you're 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 kept off the stand it doesn't mean you're per se incompetent to testify it just means you're allowed to testify but as long as the other side knows about the arrangement and can ask about the arrangement then it's considered to be a jury question about whether the person is lying or not. Now, in in a sense, that could work if, in fact, these deals were always disclosed to the other side. Because sometimes Mm -hmm. the arrangements aren't ironclad. There are some arrangements where the informant or the cooperator might be testifying not based on a promise of leniency, but sort of a hope or expectation of leniency. So if they're asked, right, they're asked, hey, are you, are you receiving any benefit for your testimony? They'll say, no, I'm not. No one's promised me anything. Yet. So, yet, yet <laughs> exactly. And, and some of these arrangements are called not in a wink arrangements, ah. where it's sort of understood that that there will be favorable treatment afterwards, but yet there's nothing explicit. So when they are asked about this, they can say, "I wasn't promised anything. I'm not expecting anything." Um, but but you know there are some really interesting reforms out there. A great scholar, um, Sasha Natapov, who teaches at Harvard now and wrote a great book called Snitching. She's often re- recommended having um, pre-trial reliability hearings where the judge really focuses on whether the informant is reliable. Um, And then if the judge, if she doesn't think the the informant's reliable, maybe the person can't testify. Um, Some states have, only a couple states, have required corroboration for informant testimony. Like there has to be some other evidence that corroborates or supports what they're saying. Um, But informants have been used for, you know, millennia. and but yes, it's a very complicated and and disturbing aspect of our system. Yeah, and I mean, I know before I went to law school, a, kind of a thought in the back of my mind when it came to informants were was the thought that 
well, I mean, they're not going to lie because they're under oath and there's this whole yeah. thing called perjury, right? But yes. the more you think about it, it's like if the person is so inclined to talk about something on the stand to avoid jail anyway, right. there's really, it, I don't know that this sort of threat of perjury and, and even some sort of penalty because of perjury really weighs enough against the possible outcome anyway to, to exactly and so, I, that, exactly yeah, that's something that i had right. to come to terms with on my own like as i thought about these issues uh but yeah i think just in the general sense that that they're like well they wouldn't lie under oath or they'd get in right. trouble anyway but like well i don't know that that really mitigates anything and so i just kind of wanted exactly. to bring that up yeah yeah. I love that you're saying that. I think that's absolutely true. That's really well thought out because not only are you going to maybe get a, get a benefit on this case by lying on the stand, but what's the likelihood that the prosecution, which has put you on the stand in the hopes that you'd <laughs> say something, will later charge you with perjury for doing what they want you to do? You know? Yeah. Right. So, well, and I mean, yeah. there's a vested sort of mutual destruction there too, right? Exactly. Like if I put you exactly. on the stand and, and encourage false testimony that's a whole nother can of worms for an attorney uh exactly and it's called it's called a napu uh, i'm just showing off now a <laughs> napu violation i think it was like a 1957 case which says that prosecutors may not put someone on the stand they know or like have reason to know will be perjuring themselves so sometimes right so sometimes prosecutors won't ask certain questions of their witnesses so they will avoid that potential liability I see. um so there are all these sort of like delicate uh, end runs around the system. And, and informants are, I, I think, a very alarming part of it. Well, I mean, in the same sort of line of things here, yeah. false confessions, that was another one that yeah. I went into law school thinking, I mean, who would admit to something they didn't do? Yeah. And I think that's a very reasonable response for any person to have, right? Like if I yes, were in completely. your situation, I wouldn't admit to killing someone I didn't kill. Like that just sounds right. absurd to you. But when you kind of look at other factors related to how a false confession comes about, and I think that there has been a lot more talk about what makes up a false confession than there ever had been in the past. But, you know, you have dubious interview techniques, yes. age as a factor, you have capacity and like mental health as a factor. And, you know, I think People are more open to hearing about how these elements contribute to false confessions, but there are so many wrongful conviction cases that have false confessions at the front end. Yes, I agree. And, and I think you've identified some of the key key issues. So like there are two major, I think, factors in why false confessions occur. The first, as you point out, is certain people are more susceptible to false confessions, typically juveniles, people who are young, who maybe don't have sort of the long-term view, and also people with cognitive or mental deficits of some some sort, uh, who may not necessarily understand exactly what's happening. Um, the second factor, and I think the second factor is relatable to all of us, which is a lot of false confections occur over lengthy, lengthy, lengthy interrogations. I, I saw some data, uh, Richard Leo, who's a great scholar at the University of San Francisco, I think it comes from him, but I might not be sure, that something like 80% of documented false confessions involved interrogations that lasted six hours or more. 
So you're just like worn down. You got six hours. As you said, there is um, there are a lot of police techniques. There's something called the read uh, method that talks about how to elicit confessions. We've all heard, you know, uh, the good cop, bad cop trope. You know, you have two investigators. One will be nice and throwing you carrots. The other will be mean and giving you sticks. The uh, scientists call this maximization and minimization. The good cop is the minimizer who'll say, hey, if you tell us the truth, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the DA who's my friend and you'll get leniency. The maximizer will say, if you don't come clean, you're getting the death penalty. Um, so I think it happens. There are these intrinsic factors, youth and, and mental health issues. And then there are these other uh, factors, the duration of interrogations and the precise techniques that we allow. Right, right. Well, and I think a lot of it, too, is just feeding information. Yes, right? absolutely. So not just yeah. encouraging someone to say something in particular, but also telling them either directly or indirectly what yeah. you want to hear. Uh, exactly. Because a lot of reliability on any kind of confession or testimony comes down to, well, you knew facts that no one else could have known like you knew information that the only way you knew that information is because you were there or someone else who was there told you. Right. And so if you're directing someone to say something in particular and they're more susceptible to saying whatever you want them to say, that will lead to them acting in whatever way you want them to. Right? Exactly. And sometimes it could just be unconscious on the part of the interrogators where they know mm-hmm. stuff about the sure. case. And over the course of the interrogation, they divulge details. Some people think it is more purposeful than that occasionally. But Brandon Garrett, who's a great scholar at Duke and wrote this book called Convicting the Innocent, which pays tribute through its title to that 1932 book by Edwin Borchard, mm-hmm. I mentioned, mm-hmm. Convicting the Innocent. He does some deep dive. I can't remember what the numbers are in the book. It's like a 2011 book where he looks at all these false confessions and he's like, in a huge percentage of them, the interrogators fed details. So it appeared as though the confession, including details that only the true perpetrator would know. The other thing I want to mention about this that that I think a lot of listeners might mm, kind of comprehend or just intuitively grasp is when you're in an interrogation or an adversarial dispute for hours and hours and hours, sometimes you might just say whatever the other person wants mm-hmm. to say to get out of it. And you think that you can come back the next day and correct the record. Like, so going, you know, think about how many times you might get into an argument with a friend, a significant older other, you know, your significant other says, you forgot to take out the garbage. And you're like, I, I did not forget. I did it. But like your significant other is adamant about it. How many of us will say, fine, you're right, I didn't, with the idea of just stopping the dispute then and there because the dispute is unpleasant, and then you just are thinking you'll relitigate it the next day. Right. But you just want to put an end to it now. You'll just admit that you, for, you, know, you, you didn't take out the garbage. You stole the cookies from the cookie jar, whatever it is. Right. But, but, but you don't really have a chance to relitigate it the next day when it comes to a police interrogation. Maybe in a relationship you do, you can wake up and be like, hey, I didn't like how you accused me of this. I really didn't do it. I just said that last night because I wanted to end the argument. You know? um, um, but I think that happens in the interrogation room. People get worn down and they just admit to it. And they're like, I will live to fight another day about this. But there isn't really a good other day. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that was, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that was part of 
Brendan Dassey in Making a Murder. Yes. He was very much under the impression I just would tell them what I wanted so that I could go home. And I think that's sort of a common theme that you hear a lot when yes. it comes to those types of questionings. And I mean, it's interesting because looking at it from a lawyer's perspective, if you're thinking about things like direct and cross, like the very reason why on a direct examination that people should be only using open-ended questions is because you don't want them to be able to lead the witness. You don't want them exactly. to be able to say, yes. you know, you want their unfettered, true answers without them being fed information, right? And so I think that sort of, it's something that I talk a lot about with my students. My students are paralegals and so they will interact yeah. with clients quite a lot. And I explain to them why you want to start with open-ended questions, right? You don't want to do leading questions because if they exactly. do, they're just going to feed back what you tell them because they think that's what you want to hear because they think that's what's exactly. going to make a good case, right? Exactly. And, and so exactly. I think it's very intuitive when you're trained in that way. And But I mean, and law enforcement is trained in a lot of obviously investigative techniques, uh, but you know they're doing so under different conditions, right? They're doing so I think in you're the right. room with just, just the person they're talking to and no one to object or hold them otherwise accountable for doing these types of questions until later on down the line, right? Uh, but that's kind of the context I saw it through when we were, when we were talking about it. I think that's absolutely right. It's a little, especially if the person's a suspect as opposed to just a witness. Mm -hmm. If the person has already come across the transom as a suspect, the police have formed this theory, and that's going to pervade how they ask their questions. I think um, you're right. Yeah. But but open open ended questions are always better if it's a search for truth. But I sure. think in the interrogation room, from the police perspective. It's a search for truth, but it's also a truth that you already think you've predetermined, which is that the suspect has done it. So you're trying to get the truth from them as opposed to just learn the objective truth, right. whatever it might be. Well, and it's adversarial, right? I it's mean, adversarial. By the yeah. time you do a cross-examination, right, it's an adversarial yes. setting. And at that point, you're asking leading questions because you want to trip exactly. them up and you want to, I mean, right. But, you know, when you're being investigative, you should be using both tools, in my opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get on to misconduct, which I think is actually yeah. this is a nice segue into, obviously, there's misconduct on the law enforcement side, but then there's also prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah. And I would say, if we, you wouldn't mind, let's just talk about these briefly, because I think these are really big components to some of the cases I want to talk about after we just kind of run through the factors. And I think that that will yeah. be a good opportunity for us to discuss them. But I know prosecutorial misconduct really comes down to, in a lot of ways, Brady violations yes. um, and withholding of exculpatory evidence. And then you have law enforcement misconduct, which is kind of related to some of the false confessions things we've already discussed, like yeah. coercive tactics. But you also have tunnel vision and bias, you yeah. have the failure to collect evidence or preserve evidence. And you also just have withholding evidence altogether. But is there anything else or any other factors that you can think of that come into play with this type of misconduct? Yeah, those, those are the key ones that you mentioned. Uh, you know, one other thing to mention, I think, uh, for prosecutors is that if a case goes to trial, you in many of these innocence cases, you see um, egregious closing arguments, mm. right, where the prosecutors will make appeals to patriotism or passion or politics or vouch for a witness or something like that, that that's unethical. Or refer to things and, and it, outside the record. Oh. 
exactly like, they me crazy when and i'm like you couldn't get that in the record that's then. not in the record yeah. you get it in the record in closing that doesn't make sense but exactly anyway, yes, another egregious issue <laughs> and, and and what's a problem with that crystal and i bet this is your experience too you did a lot of immigration cases but um is even if that's considered to be an error on appeal it's often a harmless error the courts will treat it as a harmless sure. error because they'll say well yeah the prosecutor shouldn't have done that right. but um you know the, all the evidence was against the defendant anyway well and i had well, the benefit too of like i didn't have a jury so like at least the yes. judge could reasonably understand like i'm not gonna that's not part of the record i'm not gonna consider it whereas you know a jury they hear something and they're told not to yeah. consider it but that's a really hard pill to swallow it's a big ask of a jury like i heard all this information that's really relevant and i'm just supposed to pretend it doesn't exist and like i right. think that's what they would do but that's really big ask it's a big ask yes exactly exactly and, and you know part of this and i don't know what your view is uh, a crystal i you know i tend to think that there aren't that many bad apples i think it's just it, it's good well-meaning investigators and prosecutors who are facing lots of pressures and you know these pressures to solve cases, pressures to get a conviction, psychological pressures that once you've developed a theory of the case, you become really wedded to it. Um, you know, professional incentives that the way to get ahead is to, quote unquote, win cases and, and win arrests. And, you know, so I, I think that's the bigger part of it. A lot of people like to say, you know, there are all these bad apples and bad actors. And, and, and I think that there are few and far between. I think it's more systemic than that. Yeah. I think the pressures, the pressures on prosecutors in particular to secure convictions as opposed to just do justice is a real problem. Mm -hmm. And by the time someone's been charged with a crime and maybe they haven't taken a plea deal, you're just so locked in and so vested in the case that, that you become, it becomes difficult for you to see evidence to the contrary. Yeah. I, and that's human nature, you know? Yeah. I think it's definitely cultural, right? Like cultural, and I think it yeah. can go from, it can look different from office to office. Exactly. And I actually exactly. get, to, so when I tell people, you know, I used to work in immigration and I say, you know, I felt that my job was to get to an outcome that the law said the outcome should be right. My, my job was to represent the government's interests and the government's interest in the law says certain people get certain things. And so my job is to look at a record and work in the court to determine if I believe someone's eligible for something. And if they are, the law says mm -hmm. they get it, right? And it's kind of the same in the criminal context in the sense that if all of these things happen and there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, then I should be going to trial and trying that person to secure a conviction that's right. in society's interest. And that's in, you know, the prosecutor's interest and so on. But I think what kind of gets lost is whenever I tell people that anyway, they're always like, well, that's what your office is like. Like your office is really nice. But when I had to handle a case over in whatever, city yes. it was awful and they were super mean and they did this or whatever the case may be and i think it's the same with prosecutor's office it's the same when it goes from prosecutor to prosecutor right or ada to ADA. exactly you're like oh i got so and so today thank goodness they're super reasonable i know they're going to listen yes. to what i have to say versus you right. walk into the courtroom and you have an ada who isn't going to budge on anything it's not going exactly. to listen it's kind of talking to a brick wall and i think that's part of the system that 
is troubling in a lot of ways, of course. Absolutely. And, and I think that also comes down to a culture aspect as well, is why I bring it up, because depending on where you are, it could be that every ADA is very optimistic exactly. versus having some who are more discretionary in what they do. Um, that's Absolutely. That's kind of what I've seen. And I'm, I mean, you've practiced, so I'm sure you've seen something similar. I agree with right? you. Oh, yeah. I agree with you completely. I often like to say that the culture is sticky, right? Like once mm. it's been formed, it's really hard. Uh, to change it. So even when a new chief prosecutor comes in, let's say, you know, completely different chief prosecutor from a different political party, a different orientation about criminal justice policy, there's still this, it's like moving, you know, the Titanic or moving a huge ship (laughs) because you have a glacier, right? You still have so many of the holdover mid-level managers and line assistants. Um, So it's just hard, hard to change. And, and then if you fire everybody and bring in your people, that creates ill will, and that doesn't always work because you can't change it too quickly. So I think you're right. I think it changed. The same thing goes for public defenders' offices. Mm-hmm. Um, it same thing goes for judges and courts and circuits. Right. Um, there are cultural pieces to it. But I think your point that's especially important, they're all really interesting, Crystal, is that it's an individual um, situation, right? It's the ADA you get. It's the public defender you get. Mm-hmm. It's the judge who's handling your case. And those sort of arbitrary assignments can really be the difference between, you know, justice and injustice. And that's kind of scary. It's scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a little bit like life though, right? Like we all relate <laughs> to that. Like, you know, yeah. you know, you yeah. know, you're, you're driving down the car and you might be fine going to the grocery store or you, there might be another guy who's texting and driving in the other lane and, and you're not okay. Like it's just, there's a randomness to life and, and arbitrariness to who is, is in your life um, that, that can have some deleterious consequences. And what's really upsetting of course, is that in criminal justice, we don't want it to be as random. Right. Right. You right. know, we think that there should be training. We think there should be, you know, some supervision and monitoring to safeguard against, you know, um, this huge personality golf. Right. Well, and, you know, the the whole thought is the system is designed, even if you're just sitting in a courtroom, right? Like the prosecutor is yeah. there to check defense and uh, yeah. the defense is there to check the prosecutor and the judge is there to exactly. check them all. And so like your, your initial thought is like, oh, well, they're all there to check one another. Um, but that's not a whole lot of solace to, well, I raised the objection during your trial. Don't worry. During mm-hmm. our direct appeal, we can talk all about it. In the meantime, you're going to have to stay <laughs> where you are. You know what I mean? It's just not a lot of, <laughs> solace to even if it all ultimately ends with it being overturned and there's you know right. Right, like because everyone loses appeals now and then but you know it's like my point is just that's not a lot of comfort for someone who's not at all yeah. and and especially because as i you talk about in the book a lot you might think okay i objected to this issue it's a good issue on appeal but then the appellate court is just gonna say well it wasn't perfectly objected to maybe it's not preserved or even if it was an error it's a harmless error in light of the case or maybe the judge was within her discretion in um uh, overruling the objection so even if you've done everything right as a defense lawyer and a trial judge has done it that doesn't mean you'll you'll, it'll be reversed on appeal yeah which Um, is even more uh right you know 
dis, or more disconcerting for the client, right? Exactly. Um, you know, that exactly. you can't promise, well, yeah, there's this mistake. And of course that mistake will be corrected. Uh, yeah. But I think a lot of people operate under the assumption that, that it will be. Um, yeah. Okay. So I do want to talk about plea bargaining, but Great. what if you don't mind, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to switch gears a little bit and just talk about some of the cases that are on our radar. Yeah, let's do that because I know our time is winding down in a few <laughs> yeah. minutes. So yeah, please. Um, and so one of the main cases I really wanted to talk about because I think that it embodies, and it's obviously a very well-known case, but I think that it embodies a lot of these components we've just walked through is the West Memphis Three. Yes. Okay, record scratch moment. Before I continue my discussion with Dan about this case, I want to pause and give an overview of the West Memphis Three. Please keep in mind that this case is extremely nuanced with a lot of different moving parts, a lot of different opinions, and a lot of different facts. This is simply a big picture summary and overview of only some components for this case for purposes of any listeners who are unfamiliar with it, just to understand our discussion. The summary is in my own words and can count as my opinion related to the facts, and it is very, very general. Now, the West Memphis Three is a moniker for a 1993 case out of West Memphis, Arkansas. It began with the heart-wrenching murder of three young boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. In 1994, three other young individuals, Jesse Miss Kelly, James Baldwin, and Damian Eccles, were convicted of the murder in this case. Jesse and James were 16 and 17 at the time, respectively, while Damian was 18 years old. Damian and James were close friends going into this situation, while Jesse just happened to come from the same area and circles, and he knew them a little bit here and there. All three were from what would be considered lower socioeconomic means in the area. Damien had some interactions with local law enforcement prior to his arrest for these murders, and he was largely targeted because he was an outlier. He wore black, he listened to Metallica, and at the time, he lived in a small southern town. James was largely honed in on by law enforcement because of his close association with Damien. These differences from the general population, as well as the clearly awful nature of the crimes at issue, led to what many allege qualifies as tunnel vision on behalf of local law enforcement, despite having no real evidence at that time of Damien's or James's involvement in these crimes. Jesse was roped into the investigation by someone outside the group saying he knew about Damien and James, and specifically that he knew that they had committed these murders because he was there. Jesse has a lower IQ, and he was a minor at the time of being questioned by police. Jesse ultimately confesses that he was there and that he saw these murders happen, but the confession later on down the line is deemed questionable for many different reasons. Jesse does, at the time of the first trial, recant his confession. He takes it back and he refuses to testify against Damien and James in their separate trial for the murders. Ultimately, his confession is largely considered to be a false confession by many experts, and this is presented in his case at his trial. 
As it turns out, aside from some obvious leading issues, feeding of information, and different components related to Jesse's capacity at the time of the confession, Jesse was also informed that he'd be able to collect the reward money and then purchase a truck for his father who desperately needed one. Even without Jesse's testimony, his confession, because it was recorded, was part of a conviction for all three of them. And all three of them were convicted by the court, hence the name or moniker West Memphis Three. A long line of appeals were denied. And this was despite the fact that there were other issues in the case, like a possible suspect from a nearby Bojangles who left blood in the bathroom of the restaurant, but that evidence was openly lost and never tested as a possible form of connection to the deaths of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. Many other factors led to these convictions, which ultimately in 2011 ended with what are called Alford pleas. Alford pleas are a device where a party maintains their innocence, but the court considers the plea as a guilty plea. And these pleas tend to appear in certain types of cases. And that is something that Dan and I will briefly talk about in a moment. There are plenty of in-depth analyses and retellings of this case by the West Memphis Three themselves and others that you can readily find and that are readily available. Materials that I have reviewed on my own are provided in our show notes for you should you want to learn more about this case. I am by no means an expert on this case. I just wanted to provide some of the facts and circumstances that have been alleged after the Alford plea and throughout the trials and throughout the processing of this case continuously so that you have some context for the discussion that Dan and I have in a moment. So now on to that discussion with Dan. Uh, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about yeah. kind of how these issues, like use this as an example to talk about the issues we've discussed. I'm sure you're familiar with the case because it's yeah. a very well-known case, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Absolutely. So, so there are a couple really interesting takeaways, and I'm glad that you you brought this up, Crystal. One is it shows sort of the, the rarely is there just one of these wrongful conviction factors in a case. Like it's just mm-hmm. eyewitness, or it's just bias, or it's just misconduct. There's usually a confluence or a cross contamination of these issues. Like once someone becomes a suspect, there might be because of a misidentification. Maybe then the the police have more vested in interrogating and getting a confession, and that leads to a false confession or something like that. So this case involves a lot of things that we see in wrongful convictions. So you have a false confession from a 17-year-old, so he's a juvenile. It's uh, somebody with a cognitive uh, deficit or impairment. So it's sort of a classic candidate for a false confession Mm -hmm. where it's a gruesome crime and the police are putting a lot of pressure on this person to quote-unquote confess. You have a theory of the case, satanic panic, that is part of a trend, a larger trend in Mm -hmm. the world at the time. There was also a trend in 
concern about child um, daycare abductions and daycare abuse and just like concern for children and child sexual abuse generally. There was there was a hysteria about it at this particular time that created uh, led to a number of cases like this satanic panic cases, but also cases involving children and sexual assault and murder. And um, so and then finally, you have the fact that these were folks on the margin, as I said at the outset of this, you know, people are much more likely to be wrongfully convicted and targeted if they are vulnerable in some fashion or marginalized, often race or, or ethnicity uh, or class or um, some other uh, sexual orientation or some other factor that makes you stand out from the majority in the community. And here you have people, especially Damien Eccles, you have people on the margins, socioeconomic margins, but also who were adhering to unpopular things like Wiccan ideology, um, Metallica, you know, it, 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 they were fringe, people on the fringe. So yeah. there's sort of a combination of all of them all of these factors. The other piece of it that I think is interesting and might be a nice thing uh, as we're wrapping things up is the, the role of the media and the role of celebrities in helping to overturn some yeah. of these cases. Yeah. Because we know about the West Memphis Three and this Alfred plea maybe, you know, occurred in part because of the pressure that the media and celebrities like Johnny Depp, you know, uh, put on this case by drawing attention to it. Sure. I mean, you have yeah. movies, books, documentaries, movies, books, all of yeah. these things, right? And you have very famous people who showed up in the courtroom yes. at different stages. But I think that carries with it good things and bad things. And bad things, yes. It brings along the visibility element, which is wonderful and important because you need to bring awareness. Um, I guess, you know, the downside is then, and I guess maybe I'm a little bit guilty of this myself, everyone thinks they're an expert then. Exactly. Everyone thinks they know everything about the case. They're like, well, I've done all these things and so on and so forth. Um, But I think one of the most, and I think this is a good thing to, or a strong thing to end on is just that, you know, Jason Baldwin in particular very much wanted to continue fighting his case. Yeah. Right. And this case contained an an element of solitary confinement. Damien Eccles was in solitary and he was suffering physically and from health wise due to that solitary confinement. And that is really, I think, ultimately what drove taking the Alford plea from my understanding. Right. There was this, because they were like, I don't want anyone to think I'm guilty of this. Like, I did not do it. I'm not associated with it. But they were like, if the only way you can take the Alford plea is if all three of you take it. Yeah. Right. That was a component. And so that's why I wanted to talk about plea bargaining in relation to this case. Because just that power and sort of that pressure to take a plea. Absolutely. You are innocent. In this case, there's no doubt that they're innocent now. Like no one thinks they're guilty, but they took this plea because that was what got them out of prison after being there for so long. Exactly. And and the way scholars like to talk about this is this idea that there are all sorts of um, punishments that are going to flow to you if you refuse a plea. Mm -hmm. So for instance, it's, it's often called the trial tax by people on the left. If you're like, this happened to one of my clients, Mm -hmm. He was offered a plea deal of three years. He was innocent. And then he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. And it took us eight years to get him out. Mm -hmm. And he gets out and he's like, I wish I took the plea. But the idea is the difference between his 
post-trial sentence of 11 versus his plea offer that he rejected of three was an eight-year tax. He was basically taxed eight years for going to trial. So if you're risk-averse, like my client in this case wasn't that risk-averse. He believed so much in his innocence, he was willing to take the risk. But if you're risk-averse, even if you're innocent, you might take the deal. You're like, I don't want to roll the die and go to trial. Prosecutors often consider this a plea discount, not a tax. You're getting a deal. It's like an early bird special at a restaurant. You're getting a deal by doing this early and saving us the time and the effort and the expense of going to trial. Which if you're guilty that and you think it, you're going to be found guilty, that is kind of true, right? And that is kind of true. <laughs> and that's what makes the plea bargaining process so perverse because mm. for the factually guilty person, it is a benefit. There's no doubt, right? right. Like, like if, they've, if you've been arrested and you're going to trial and there's really no chance of, very little chance, like zero chance of winning a trial, then it is a discount. You're getting a, a deal. So that's why they're often called deal. But if you have a credible claim at all, whether it's of innocence or legal innocence, factual innocence, legal innocence, constitutional issue, whatever, you're being penalized through the plea bargaining process. I, I, the way I sometimes present this to my students, I say to them at the beginning of class, like two or three weeks in, what if I were to offer you a B in this class right now? You mm-hmm. don't have to do any work. You don't have to take the final exam. How many of you would take the deal? And they're sort of like, well, we don't know. We don't have enough information. Like, what's the likelihood of getting an A in the class? Like, what do I have to do to get an A? Even more, what's the likelihood of getting a C? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, you know, and I'm not giving them all my you know, grading ranges and I'm not telling them exactly what goes into the mix. It's a little bit like that with a plea bargain. You're taking the deal because you're worried about a different result, but you're also forsaking the A. The A of acquittal in this case, right? You're forsaking, you're, you're forsaking the chance of, of, of walking out. But you're pleading with a- access to imperfect information. You don't really know what the chances are that you'll do worse mm-hmm. than the deal. So, it, it, you know, it's here to stay. Alaska abolished it for a while. Like, there, there are arguments against it. But it really is here to stay because, uh, frankly, it's efficient. And yeah. we just don't, you know, the we don't have the resource. Can't function yeah. Otherwise, I think is really yeah. kind of right. Like the the idea that you don't have, you can't do trials for every case that gets charges, which I think speaks exactly. to another issue probably, but which is over criminalization. <laughs> yes. Like let's not charge so many people with crimes. Right. That, that would be a solution. And every case only charge, you know, serious violent crimes and let all those cases go to trial. Right. Well, I was going to say, you that, know. that could be a whole nother episode. In and of that's, itself. that's yes. Um, let's write a book together, Crystal. Well, and, uh... <laughs> I would love that. I mean, and I know we're at our time, but I, yeah. I do have one last thing that I would love to ask of you. And that's because I was really enthralled with this particular podcast called Murder and Alliance. And this podcast is hosted and conducted by Maggie Freeling. And she is in a more of like a journalist, right? And she ends up doing these investigations with two people who are actually from Proclaim Justice, which is Jason Baldwin's organization post his release. And he's actually involved in this case. And it's just, I guess what you might consider a relatively normal case. It's a homicide of this woman named Yvonne. And there is a guy who confesses to killing Yvonne and, but says that he was hired by her ex. 
who mm. was fighting with her for custody. Okay. And the really the reason why I want to bring it up is because one, I think it's a great example of what these investigations look like, because if you're trying to find new evidence, investigation is a really big part of the post-conviction process. And so two things during their investigation, they find kind of a lot of evidence that works against who would be their client, right? Because at this point, mm. they're trying to determine whether or not proclaimed justice yeah. is going to take the case and ultimately try yeah. to fight it. And so they end up finding a lot of evidence that's just not favorable for the person yeah. they would ultimately represent. And Maggie goes through this sort of reckoning throughout the recording of he might be guilty. Like I, yeah. and then she has this feeling where it's like I expended all these resources and took away these resources from someone else in order yeah. to pursue something. And so, you know, I guess I would just like to end on sort of any thoughts you have, because these, I give you so much credit for working on cases like this yeah. in your career, because they are emotionally taxing and they yes, can be very, they are. right. They, they are very, very difficult cases to work with the, you know, the clients are very sympathetic and you want to do everything you can for them. You're working with the client's yeah. family. Just so if you could maybe touch upon like, you know, how do you handle that type of situation? Yeah. What, what do you do? And, and just kind of, if you could leave any advice yeah. for someone who's engaging in this type of advocacy. You know, it's, it's, it's an, it's an amazing question. So a couple thoughts, you know, first of all, well, there's a reason I became an academic after doing this work, which mm. is it was draining. I was a public defender for a couple of years, ran this innocence project at Brooklyn Law School with a colleague for like four years. And since then, I've been doing more academic work and consulting and on boards of innocence projects, but it's not, I'm not in the weeds as much. And part of the reason, Crystal, frankly, was it was emotionally and physically taxing. Mm. You get very much in the weeds. You get very committed to the case. Sometimes the case doesn't pan out. Sometimes you pick the wrong case. Sometimes you overlook the right case, mm -hmm. and that keeps you up at night. I've had a number of cases where I know that our clinic passed on it because we didn't think it was meritorious, and the person was later freed by someone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, You've you've situ you're, you're you're like triaging in an emergency room. When mm -hmm. I was at Brooklyn Law School, I was getting hundreds and hundreds of letters, and I, sure. I'll never forget. I was working late one night. It was before we had kids. My wife and I had kids, and literally my bookcase collapsed from the weight of these oh letters. Gosh. And I looked. I couldn't get to my door to get out, and I had to clean it all up. And I just started laughing because I'm like, is this the most symbolic thing about my life? Like, it's just all these unread files are so heavy mm. that it's collapsing. And, and, and so I think the way to view it is to understand that mistakes will be made, that you might make mistakes, you might pick the wrong case, you might miss the right case. But the net net, the goal of all of us, I think, is to do a little bit more good than bad in our lives. Mm. My favorite Supreme Court case, um, it, it just this, my language, the favorite quote I have from the Supreme Court, and I don't quote from the Supreme Court very often because I think it's really snobby and elitist, but <laughs> I will quote from this one because I love it. It, it, this justice, Justice Robert Jackson, who I think is a really good justice, he was the first justice who was both an attorney general and uh, a justice on the Supreme Court. It was a case about character evidence and credibility. And he said that a person's character is the sum of the debits 
and the credits on the ledger of their life. Like that's your character. You add up the debits and you add up the credits. And I tell my students this all the time. I said, guys, I'm going to have lots of debits. I'm going to mess up, but I just want one more credit on the ledger of my life on my deathbed. And that's how I view these innocence cases, right? It's like one more credit. I was going to make mistakes. I was going to make some bad decisions. But if I could make one more good decision than bad decisions, and I'm a net positive in this work, then I can sleep at night. And, And I think that's the only way to do it. Because if you have that perfectionism, you're just going to be paralyzed because you're not going to be perfect. You're, you're, you're not going to find every piece of evidence. You're not going to raise every good argument. You're not going to get every good case. So just keep remembering, hey, like, I want more credits than debits, but I'm going to have some debits. That, that's, that's how I try to do it. Easier said than done. No, I appreciate that, though. That's a really honest and very easy, real way to look at it, right? Because yeah. like, that extends to not just your work, but just your life as a person. Just life. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and we all have, think about it in terms of not to, you know, get too you know philosophical <laughs> at the end, but like we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We make we make mistakes every day. We say the thing things we shouldn't say. We do the things we and, and you can apologize and you can try to move on. But the idea is that maybe you can learn from it and, and, and try to do better the next time instead of just beating yourself up over that mistake, which then will make it harder for you to do better the next time. Right. You know, right. so I, th- I mean, I try to do it, but it's, it's really hard to do, you it know, is for really all of hard. us. And, you know, I appreciate your honesty and your candor with that, because I think that you have to have a realistic view. And, and it's interesting because when Maggie in this podcast is kind of having these revelations, the other two investigators yeah. are there with her and they are like, you know, Maggie, the reality is that this person may or may not have done it. Right. But yeah. our goal is not necessarily to say his conviction was wrong. Our goal is to find the truth and the facts there you go. and, yeah. you know, we're doing this for truth. We're doing exactly for our own conscience too, right? Like you're talking about debits and credits. Like we're doing this to know that we have done everything we can to find the truth and do the right thing. And that's all anyone can ever ask of us. And I think that, that brings her a lot of peace. Um, and what you just said brings me a lot of peace. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, a beautiful way to look at it. So, well, thank you so much for your Thank time you, Crystal. Today. It was I, delightful. Oh, no, my pleasure. And I have plenty of case that I want to talk to you about still. So I hope that you will join us again for a part two at some time in the future. Uh, that would be great. Yes, no, it was my pleasure. And thank you, you too, so Crystal. Much. Take have- care. And that concludes this episode of the Law School Lounge. Our time with Professor Daniel Medwed is over for now. I hope to have him back with me in the future to discuss some other cases we didn't have enough time to get to, like the Angola 3 and the Adnan Syed case from the well-known podcast Serial. So I will work on getting him back here with us so that we can talk about those things in light of the really important discussion that we had in this episode here. I hope that you felt we shared insightful and important information and that you learned something by listening to our chat. If you want to know more about wrongful convictions and innocence-based advocacy, of course, take a look at Dan's book, 
Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. And if you are a law student and you just want to learn more about criminal law through the eyes of Professor Medwed, or you're a faculty member and you're interested in reviewing his book, take a look at his criminal law casebook with Professor Kevin McMonagall available at cap-press.com. And last but not least, please, if you have a moment, give us a short five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. This just really helps get the show out there so that people can find us. And please give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date on new episodes and things that are coming in the future. You'll find us at Law School Lounge. And if you have any episode requests or other questions, you can reach me at lawschoolloungepod at caplaw.com. I'd love to hear from you and I'll catch you next time. 